Teresa Wiesar, your host of One in Ten. In today's episode, Neglect and the Ecosystem of Abuse, I talk with Paul DiLorenzo, who's worked in every aspect of the child welfare system over the past 40 years, as a writer, as a consultant, and as a caseworker. And this varied experience gives him such a wealth of knowledge and information and truly unique insight into our field. One of his key insights has been around the relationship between chronic neglect and child sexual abuse. Now, if you've been working in child sexual abuse for a while, you often think about it, yes, that people are probably victimized or maybe victimized in more than one way. But have you thought deeply about the fact that chronic neglect may create the environment in which child sexual abuse can thrive? Paul asked the question about how we might interrupt the cycle of generational abuse by stopping the cycle of chronic neglect. What prevents us from doing this right now? Is part of it that as child abuse professionals, we've grown cynical and given up on some families entirely as they cycle back through the system? What would it really mean if we truly believed in the power of redemption and that even the most struggling families could change? Join me in this thoughtful conversation about engaging families right where they are and helping them invest in their own healing. Take a listen. There are so many issues you've looked at over the years, but when you think about the issues of recurrence or re-victimization, first I want you to kind of define the terms for the audience so that they, you know, we have a common language to talk about this, but I also want to know specifically what interested you in that topic. There's a couple things, I guess. One was early on in my career, it was striking to me how many families that I was working with where the parents had been in the system themselves. Kids would get reported for abuse or neglect, mostly they were neglect cases, and I was kind of in the foster care end of it. And how many of the families had had histories of being in foster care, had been mm. had histories of separation. And so it was really not so much the recurrence, but the intergenerational transmission of challenges, right? And so that led me to think more about recurrence. And through my career, I've always been concerned about that issue. And so that was why I gravitated as time went on to more prevention and family support work. Uh, probably most of the time that I spent with Casey Family Programs was on the development of community and neighborhood-based family support and prevention projects. And I guess it was all about how we think about breaking the cycle of abuse and neglect mm, and maltreatment. Mm. And then I also have been a big believer in the lessons learned from the 12-step programs. You know, the kind of the power of redemption, right? The idea that Relapse is a regular part of what happens for people mm. who are struggling with their disease. Um, but ultimately, they can get on the other side of that. And when they do, it really sets a whole new course, a whole new course, not only for them, but for their families and for the people around them. And so the recurrence issues for me uh, are really about breaking those cycles and being able to find a new path uh, for a family. I will say that extra and added challenge for families in the child welfare system is it isn't just about the families, it's about the circumstances in which they live, right? So over the years, I think we've tended to think that the problem is all with the family, but it's also systemically, right? That we have families who are struggling with issues of poverty, issues of racism, uh, all of the kind of socioeconomic challenges that they face. That combined with their family and intergenerational trauma make it really difficult for them to 
maintain stable, healthy family lives where kids can thrive. So thinking about sort of bringing that to the Children's Advocacy Center that you've been heading for these uh, many months, talk a little bit about what, I mean, is it just this general interest and recurrence that made you say, how does that really apply to our work within the Children's Advocacy Center? Or was it something that you were seeing sort of coming into the CAC with fresh eyes that you said, this is something we really need to pay attention to. I want to partner with Temple University, which we're going to talk more about that in a minute, but I want to partner with researchers to really look at that. Yeah, let me start back. I think I should say that uh, I was one of the founders of the Philadelphia's Child Advocacy Center. Our original work was really based on our desire to lessen the conflict between and among all of the parties, the Department of Human Services and the police and the Children's Hospital and the agency that provided legal services to kids and and their families, the district attorney's office, all of us kind of working together. And, you know, every month it was the same thing, you know, kind of these hot and heavy meetings about who didn't do what in a case. And what we saw were, you know, these kids getting re-victimized over and over, Mm -hmm. not only in their families, but also by the system. We went to Huntsville, we took a look at that center and we said, we can do this. And we came back, I think, committed to the notion that we were going to find a way to decrease the level of trauma for kids who had already been significantly traumatized and to try to break those intergenerational cycles. So flash forward, 31 years in uh, being asked to take this role as an interim executive director after Chris Kirkner, you know, we began to look at the data there. And I had not been in a child advocacy center for a long time. I just, my work wasn't taking me there. Even though my work was all over the country, it was really more with with the child welfare agency itself. And so we started to look at the data that we had collected in Philly. And I was shocked, quite honestly, at the level of recurrence. I asked the question, well, how many kids who come in to see us and who need a forensic interview and some counseling, et cetera, how many of those kids have been with us before? And as we extracted those numbers, we found that it could have been anything from 14 or 15% all the way up to 30%, depending on the month. And, you know, someone in the course of a meeting said, you know, well, sometimes the kids come back a second time because we didn't get complete the interview where they weren't able to talk the first time. And I said, it doesn't matter. They're coming back. They're coming back to relive an unpleasant experience. And we should figure out what we can do differently. So two things. One was, you know, kind of the downer of all this, which was to say, my gosh, 31 years later, and we're still struggling with how to avoid re-traumatizing kids. So the work is never done. And secondly, the good news is that we have enough research and enough information about how to work with families now that we can at least decrease the level of recurrence, maybe not eliminate it totally, but at least decrease it. And so that's why we decided to take on this project. But that's why it's been such a big interest of mine, because, you know, I think real prevention of child abuse and neglect has to do with breaking the intergenerational cycles. You know, it's so interesting, and I'm so glad that you looked at this issue, because I think many CECs, no, I mean, every CAC director in the country and their staff have families that they've seen come in more than once and have identified that and, you know, are horrified by it. And um, it doesn't matter if it's a situation where it's recurring in the same family or it's a child who is being victimized by multiple people over time. It's still terrible when it happens. But I'm not sure that many have done the work or had the ability to do the work to really look at, well, what is 
<laughs> you know, what is the rate of recurrence in RCAC? What is the rate of revictimization? And I think that that's the critical thing that, you know, to pay, begin to pay attention to that sort of opens a door for problem solving around where are the points of intervention. And once you saw this number, you were surprised by it in a very unpleasant way that it was as high as it was. What did you all find in working with the researchers from Temple in terms of, you know, both from your experience and from the literature in regard to what were specific risk factors that increased the likelihood of recurrence and revictimization? And were there specific protective factors as well that you began to examine? So the work with Temple is continuing and we're early on with it. A little bit that we've looked at so far kind of confirms what we know from the literature. There are a few things. I guess a prior CPS report is the greatest indicator of risk and to whether or not those families are going to come back into the system. I forget exactly what the what the data says, but I think it's something like one third of the families who come in for investigations around uh, neglect have had three or four prior uh, encounters with the CPS system. Mm. I think that, um, and this is kind of combining my my work with prevention in the past. I'm a big believer that sex abuse of kids, most of the cases anyway, occurs within an environment of chronic neglect. And I'm not talking about like situational neglect where, you know, during the pandemic, families- They lost their job or something like that. Yeah, and they're they're kind of struggling with that. I'm talking about long-term chronic Mm, neglect mm. that involves, you know, intergenerational trauma and the whole bit. That means that the patterns of parenting are embedded in family life, right? They're stuck there. And they're usually- kind of enabled by things like substance abuse on the part of parents or mental health problems or DV issues. And, mm-hmm. You know, there's this kind of cavalcade of things that happen for the family. And, and within that context, a good deal of sex abuse occurs. And so, you know, we can intervene at the point of the sex abuse, almost like an emergency room. But unless we really deal with the kind of chronic neglect and support and the protective factors that families need, the likelihood is that those families are going to come back again. I don't know if that makes sense, but I think we keep treating the sex abuse issue as if it's a sex abuse issue alone, and it's not. It really is. I think it, it happens within an environment of other factors that that so stress out a family that their sense of proportion is just out of whack, right? They can't manage the daily tasks. They can't manage the protective tasks because they're so overwhelmed. It's so interesting that you say this, and I'm so glad you're talking about neglect because I feel like this is one, you know, two things happen with neglect in our world. One is that I think many CACs, while they have served physical abuse cases for a long time, have really had very little contact with neglect cases, and they may not see this connection between chronic neglect and sexual abuse that you're talking about. And I think it's a key insight about how this arises in families. I think the other thing is that just overall, as a public policy matter, I think that we have not taken neglect sufficiently seriously. And it's the reason that someone can have three or four or five or six reports of neglect and no big alarm goes off for anyone. You know, within the CPS system, within multidisciplinary teams, it's like, well, that's really sad, but that's the family and that's the so-and-so family that we see all the time. And we've seen their parents and their parents' parents and whatever, but there's not a sense of alarm about it if the individual neglect incident was not considered severe at the time. And I think it's a slow burning fire, you know? And I think that that's the shame of it is that somehow as a country, we have not gotten our arms around neglect. And as you say, it has all these spillover effects that are so concerning 
about that? It's such a smart observation for a variety of reasons um, because it is a slow burn. <laughs> I don't want to get too grim here, but I've, I've been involved in a number of child fatality reviews over the years. And in so many of those cases, I mean, there's a handful of things that you, you, you see in almost all of them. But in, in a lot of them, there is this kind of pattern of chronic neglect that has occurred, right? There have been some issues of maltreatment, like abuse, physical abuse, but it's that long-term chronic neglect and inability to parent and to manage the life situation in front of them, right? For whatever reason, no blame, no shame, it's just, just the fact. And in turn, to your point, what you also see in a lot of those fatality cases is a lot of social watching and not social working, right? Mm -hmm. People are observing it. I mean, I've, I've read case files where people say, you know, visited mom today, uh, you know, she was on the couch while the kids were playing, they were dirty, this, that, it was the other thing. And then there's no note about, so what happened next? I mean, right. you know, this is maybe the fifth visit that the worker has made and made the same observations, but nothing has really changed. And it, without a realization that in those cases of chronic neglect, the situation only gets worse. It doesn't get better. And if you look at the data, the, the data shows you there are the families that just keep getting reported either by the schools or the medical professionals or whatever. So if you have that as the environment for a family, the inability to protect, at some point, the kids are going to become vulnerable to sexual exploitation, either by a paramour or a, a friend or a relative or somebody. Now, that's not all the cases that CACs encounter. I, I understand that. But I think it's a large percentage of them. I was going to say, I it's a surprisingly large percentage, I think, yeah. if you really look at it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the reality is that these families don't come just kind of drop from the sky. The sex abuse doesn't just happen out of the clear blue. Rare cases, it does. But that, but we know that that's generally not the case. And, you know, when I asked our staff, you know, when we were looking at the data, um, you know, so what do we think the story is with the data? Because I'm, I'm a big believer that no data without a story. And so there's a number of stories, but one of them is this is not the first time around for these families. Mm. And they were involved with law enforcement. They're involved with CPS sure. or they are, you know, the kids are acting out in school or there's some kind of chronic health problems. I mean, it's all of these kinds of things that lead you to believe that it's the confluence of factors, the confluence of chronic neglect that eventually leaves kids vulnerable. And so, you know, if, you, if you're going to take on the issue of prevention, it can't be just dropping pamphlets from a helicopter and hoping that people read yeah. them and they don't do good touch, bad touch and all that stuff. But, you know, really addressing the protective factors that keep kids safe. I wonder, you know, as you've been examining this issue and thinking about it for a while, what do you think are some key points for prevention and intervention when you're dealing with families where chronic neglect is an issue that eventually leads to something I mean, I hate to say worse because that in and of itself is terrible, but, you know, it, it, it leads to additional forms of maltreatment, including child sexual abuse. Yeah, I, I think the most underrated and undertrained skill that we need in response to what you're saying for our social workers and our CAC people, everybody, is, is the ability to engage families successfully mm. and to really, truly understand how you start where they are. I mean, I think CACs are in this really wonderful position to do that because if you look at them, that the challenges facing the families that we see, they're kind of multidisciplinary in nature, right? It could be food, clothing, and shelter. It could be how to find a job. It could be, you know, parenting classes. It could be a number of different things. You have to have our staff of our agencies and CACs 
they really need to know how to engage families in a meaningful way, not just around the sex abuse, but what is also important to them at the moment. So I think that's one of the things. I think the second is that any effort to address what goes on for families has to be multidisciplinary in nature, right? We can't just kind of focus on the child protection issues, but we do need to be thinking about who are other partners that we need to have involved. I kind of feel like in the year or so that I've been as an interim director that the one area I haven't worked enough on is the importance and the value of the medical partners, right? Mm-hmm. Because, mm-hmm. because the medical partners have this unique interesting and non-judgmental relationship with families that families respond to, right? I mean, we know all that visiting nurses. And I think there's there's a parallel to what happens in CAC. So we have a clinic in our, uh, at the Philadelphia CAC, but, um, you know, we don't, I don't know that we fully take advantage of it. And we need to do that. But the multidisciplinary approach, I think, is one of the areas. I think um, we haven't figured out a good way to to engage other family members as a part of the safety protection plan. And CACs, I mean, you know, we're all about partnership. We're all about collaboration. We're all about figuring out how you keep the egos, you know, kind of uh, in check, check, (laughs) right? That's the best way to put it. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, and so I think we have a thing or two that we can teach child welfare agencies. If we could figure out what's the combination, what could be a better or a more enhanced version of the CAC movement And in my mind, this is just a totally kind of crazy thought, but wouldn't it be interesting if we could combine some hybrid version of a CAC and a family resource center together, Mm -hmm. really lift up and enhance the victim advocacy work to make it more of a family support function and true engagement function and making sure that we have the CAC available for the families that need it. I just want to ask you, because I feel like because we've been very deeply involved in the last year in this um, family engagement project Uh and with victim advocates. And I want to I just am curious about whether you think the family engagement is kind of a lost art, not only for CPS, but we find it in training clinicians. We find it in training family advocates. And I'm just so curious about that because it's it's certainly central to the work. And yet I'm not sure how it gets transmitted or taught or those kinds of things. So what are your thoughts about that? I couldn't agree more. I had this conversation with the Department of Human Services, the administrator who works with us at the CAC, and she's really a great partner and a a really good social worker. And one of the things that we were talking about is that families miss appointments or they don't show up or we have the recurrence issues in part because we're not doing a good job of engaging them, right? Mm -hmm. People will show up if we incentivize it, if we engage them, if we say to them, this is really important, Teresa, I think you should go. What is it that I can do to make sure you get there? Do you want me to drive you? Do you need an Uber to get you there? Uh, I mean, we provide all of those services. Sure. But there's still that missing element that I've got to trust you. I've got to believe, as a family member, I've got to believe that this is at the top of the list. This is really important. And the only way I'm going to do that is if I trust you. And if I feel engaged and that you're listening to me, we have reduced child protection, social work for the most part to checklists. It's very transactional. It's not relational. Mm, mm. And, you know, I don't know how many agencies around the country I've visited that are really proud and excited about their risk assessment model or their safety assessment tool or whatever. And, And I get it. I mean, I understand all of why we need to do those things. But part of why we're needing to do them is because we don't have a lot of trained social workers. We don't have a lot mm. of people who are trained with the right kind of engagement skills and relationship skills. 
that's an art and a science. And we have a lot of people who just can't do it because they're so busy checking lists and boxes and doing paperwork that they don't really spend the time on the well, and triaging and, you know, all of those things. I mean, when I think about the role of um, family advocates within a children's advocacy center, often they're doing everything that nobody else has any time for. So in addition to what they're supposed to be doing to be a support to the family, they have this sort of miscellaneous other roles that that become very difficult. And the other thing I guess I've noticed is that often there's such a small number of victim advocates or family advocates within the CAC that the caseloads are so huge that mm-hmm. I think it's easy for it to become sort of checklist oriented or transactional yeah. because they're just overwhelmed with the sheer volume of cases coming in. You know, what strategies are you both yeah, thinking let me, about? Let me comment, and, let me comment yeah. on that a second because I, that's, that's, I mean, I think that's another opportunity for us. I mean, I watch and see what our victim advocates do at our CAC. They really do exceptional work and they engage families. I mean, they they go above and beyond and they still have difficulty getting some of those families in. So I don't wanna place it all at the feet of the social workers. I think some of this is a family responsibility, et cetera. But I also think that we haven't learned enough about the engagement skills nor Mm. made the caseloads reasonable enough Right. So that people can do that work and that we emphasize that in the prevention work I do a lot of with my the people I worked with over the years have heard me use this analogy and I don't know that it's a great one but I think it I think it works in some ways is that there are stores and businesses that have really great customer service right Nordstrom Chick-fil-A you know there's two or three others that have great customer service Apple you go to those places and you know you're going to get really good service. I mean, you can go to Chick-fil-A. It doesn't matter. It's fast food. It's the same fast food, but right. I mean, it's the same, basically the same stuff. You go for the quality of service, mm, politics aside, sure. you go for the quality of service. You go to Nordstrom because you know, if you go in to buy a dress, you're going to come out with five or six other items because they know customer service, right? Right. It's different than if you go to Target, which is very transactional. You go, you up the aisle, you buy your dress and you leave. Yeah. I would really love to see us learn from other professions Mm. about customer service. So we learn how to engage people. We learn how to get them to say, I want to go back to Nordstrom. Now we don't want them to come back to the advocacy center, but we want them to know that if and when they need to to get help, they don't wait till the crisis occurs. They know that there's a friendly face and the customer service is going to be good for them. Let me ask you something. Do you think part of the problem is that sometimes we're confused about who the customer is? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I wonder if CPS thinks that the courts are the customer and do we think that the MDT is the primary customer? And I mean, I just, I wonder, it's an interesting analogy you're making. And I'm wondering if maybe, because all those other stakeholders and constituencies are important, but have we got it a little out of whack? And that mm-hmm. is why we're not focused on thinking that our primary responsibility is this sort of family engagement, customer service approach to the families that are coming in the door because of all the other competing demands. Yeah, I think that's at the heart of the CACs, right? I mean, they, because because they do all have their own unique interests and customers, if you will. And I think that in many ways, the CAC is is more than just a program or an agency. It's a process. I mean, I, I always thought of it as a process, right? It's the work that you've done and other people have done. It's really navigating how you get police and DHS and all these other people to agree to something that they normally wouldn't agree to. It's really kind of a, 
it's really, uh, you know, kind of an unnatural act among consenting adults, right? They're, you know, they're, you're trying to get them to It's do an ongoing something. negotiation for sure. Yeah. I mean, you're trying to get them to do something that they, they normally wouldn't do. But, you yeah. know, law enforcement isn't likely to kind of cozy up to the warm and fuzzy guys, right? Yeah. On the other hand, the social workers have their own perspective on all of this. And, and then you have district attorneys who need to kind of score points that their judges and with their constituencies as well. So, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that is, it's a good conversation to have uh, and probably one that we should have on a broader scale. But I want to go back to the other point, which is, you know, how we perceive ourselves generally, which is the CPS system, I think, the CPS system generally is really the emergency room for mm. all this stuff that happens, mm. you know, it goes, and it goes back to the recurrence issue. We have never really figured out how to adequately deal with getting ourselves out of the emergency room business, right? We're always going to need that. But, you know, if you think about medicine and you think about something like, say, heart disease, we have reams of information now that show you shouldn't smoke, you should eat right, you should exercise, you sure. all these things, you should do, meditate, whatever. But even with that, we know that, okay, some people are going to need the ER when we, and they're going to need that follow-up. They're going to need that service. But then they're going to need the follow-up too. And that's where we should also be having the conversation, right? Mm. What's the follow-up so they don't wind up back in the emergency room? So we've got to do a better job of the upfront work with the protective factors for kids and families. Uh, and the ER then needs to be the opportunity to say, we're going to stop the cycle here. We're going to make sure that this family has everything they need so that they don't come back into that ER again. Do you feel that we don't adequately own that as the outcome we're seeking? You know, I mean, I do think that whatever you commit yourself to in terms of this is the outcome you're wanting, you'll drive the entire system toward it. And I'm just wondering if you think that as an entire system, so not just the CAC, but this multidisciplinary process that we're all a part of and coordinating, do you feel like we've really sort of focused on that as the central outcome we're wanting? That it's something around ensuring that this child is not only doing well, but is safe beyond their time with us, that they're, you know, that they're being protected because their family has been strengthened in such a way that the family can provide that protection ongoing. I think that may be the case. I mean, you know, I think your job, you know, you in particular and NCA's role is a challenging one. It's as challenging as mine in trying to make sure that all of my folks get along. Because as someone who's come back into this movement, you know, even if it's been for this brief time, it seems to me that, that there's no one, I mean, you've seen one, you've seen one, that's it. <laughs> you know, I talk to people like in Chicago or Baltimore or here or there, or smaller places in Pennsylvania somewhere, everybody's kind of doing something a little different. I really admire the fact that you've tried to put some standards into this and that, you know, we have something that looks like standards of excellence and quality. That's far more than most child welfare agencies have, by the way. But so I think, I think it's really noteworthy. But I do think it's difficult for the, the child advocacy center movement to get on top of what you're, what you're asking because so many of them function in a different way. I mean, some of them, when I hear them talk, it's very law enforcement oriented and others they are very kind of therapeutic and others that are more uh, oriented towards uh, the public health issues. So, I mean, I think we have that opportunity, but also I think in some ways an obstacle to to the work because of so many different perspectives. Having said that, I still go back to the notion that 
CACDs are multidisciplinary in nature. They are all about partnering. They all are about collaborating. And we know more about that, I think, than probably most traditional child welfare agencies. Well, I definitely think that we have a unique skill set there. And what, what makes me feel... I don't know, hopeful about all of this, is that I think the children's advocacy movement has faced other issues in the past that maybe they didn't have a real awareness of previously, and then it's brought to their attention and they really think about it. And we've seen some truly transformational things happen. So Uh I think it can happen here too. I'm just wondering though, there's the work that children's advocacy centers and CPS and multidisciplinary teams that we all need to do around family engagement, around tailoring services, around paying attention to chronic neglect and it's tied to sexual abuse. What I'm also wondering though is how does public policy play a part of this? In other words, there's the individual level effort and then there's policy at some other level that should support that. And so what is your advice if you could get a word in edgewise with policymakers at the moment, what would you advise them around these issues? Well, you know, I think this is the conversation that's been going on at a broader level around child welfare over the last couple of years. And, and it's this whole idea of, are we really just kind of the hamster wheel of human services, right? We just keep spinning and spinning around here because we believe that the child rescue mentality is the right mindset. And, and it isn't. I mean, what we are really should be in the business of is family healing. And so I think you have to base your policies on the single question, are we doing everything humanly possible to enable a family to stay together and to Mm -hmm. to have kids be safe and to thrive in their own homes or at least in their own communities with family members? I don't think we are. And so, I mean, I love the idea that, you know, we have places that kids can go if a family is really at the point where they can't maintain a child safely. I'm not against foster care. I'm not against group care if all used appropriately. But we have way overused out-of-home placement as a mechanism for uh, working with kids and trying to keep kids safe. If we really are serious about breaking the cycles of abuse and neglect and of doing long-term healing of families, we need to be in the business of spending our time, our money, our energy on keeping those families together whenever possible, or at least exploring other family members as options. We've gotten a lot farther along than that, at least in the time that I've been in the work. You know, when I first came into the profession 40 years ago, I worked for an agency that had, we had more kids in care, a private agency, we had more kids in care in the city than any other agency. We wore that as a badge of honor. We had hundreds of kids and thousands probably of kids in care, group care, residential care, foster care. And it wasn't too much longer after I was in the work that I realized what are we doing here? I mean, what, mm, what, mm. this is, we're, we're really not in the right business, but there was not a lot of alternatives either. It wasn't because we didn't believe in families. We didn't believe in their capacity to grow, to change, or, you know, and this was a faith-based agency. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, where's the, where's the whole idea or the conversation about redemption and all of this, you know, how do we really do something to help families change or to, um, to improve? So I think there's that. And then I think the other thing is that we should be thinking less about just the narrow lens of child safety and more about well-being. And kids and families are not going to thrive if they don't have enough to eat. They're not, you know, they don't have adequate housing and clothing. Um, You know, so the issues of poverty, uh, in my mind, are are closely connected to what happens related to the well-being of kids. 
It's so interesting what you were just saying about redemption, because I do think that that's one of the things that sort of permeates a lot of not just child welfare, but sort of the broader child abuse prevention and intervention world, sometimes there's a feeling of hopelessness about Mm -hmm. families and not enough sense that families can get better and belief in that, which then would motivate you to behave differently and interacting with families. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you, I don't follow a lot of social media, but one thing that I do follow is called Humans of New York. And it's these stories um, about New Yorkers, just everyday people. And one of them recently was, and I thought it was very brave of him to share was about a man who had lost custody of his child uh, because of his addiction Mm. and his multi-year efforts to to get sober and get his child back and be a good parent to this child and it was not a story of just like endless happy ending because he really covered his sort of relapses and recovery and I was struck by several things about it. One, the sheer bravery of putting a face on a person who had been through the child welfare system in that way, you know, and being willing to talk about having a child um, removed from him um, for a period of years, because that's, you know, for many, the shame around that is just tremendous. Oh, no. Yeah. So, but the other thing was this, his really was a story of redemption. And I just Mm -hmm. thought it was so interesting you talking about this, because I think we don't have enough of those stories. Yeah. You know, and what is left in the public discourse is an idea that once a family has a breakdown in their family, it's just going to be this never ending cycle. Yeah, I'm not uh, in any way a Pollyanna. I mean, I've done this work long enough and been involved in enough situations where I know the depths of (laughs) how bad human beings can sink. Yes. And uh, and I'm not uh, also naive enough to think that families who sexually abuse their kids should just, you know, we should just turn their kids over to them and not be, you know, just hope for the best. I think that's why we have a a child protection system, but we can't just keep putting band-aids on all of this and and Mm -hmm. imagining it's going to change. I mean, every year I look at the child abuse and neglect, uh, the federal data. And, you know, each year there's kind of like this little bump up or this little bump down, but you know what? It's basically the same stuff every year. So, we've made some improvements and things have changed and we have far less kids in foster care than we have in the past. Thank God. But, you know, overall, it's, it's not a great situation because we keep cycling people in and out. That should tell us something. I mean, it should tell us something about the influences of intergenerational trauma. It should tell us something about the influences of poverty and race. I mean, all these things that we kind of tend to just brush under the rug. So I, well, it should I mean, tell us that our approach is not working, right? I mean, yeah. continuing to see a completely flat rate of neglect for 40 mm-hmm. years should tell us that something we're doing in our interventions is not effective. Or we've yeah. seen that tick down and the way it's ticked down for sexual abuse, for physical abuse over that period of time. And I think, you know, it's, it's one of those things where if what we were doing was working, we would be seeing a decline. And we've got yeah. to change the paradigm if we want to see a decline, as we have with other things. No, I, I'm totally, I'm totally in agreement with that. And I think, again, I think CACs are in a unique position to do that. I mean, going back to your point, though, just a moment ago, I mean, I'm always a big fan of the last few moments of the movie, The Shawshank Redemption. And, mm. and you know, the character is reading the letter from Andy and, you know, the letter it says hope is a good thing. And I think we have to keep reinforcing that notion that it, it does feel like we're pushing the rock up the hill a lot. And we are in many ways. But in the process of doing that, we should be questioning everything we do. And in my mind, 
the fact that those numbers are flat, that they're kind of where they are, that they don't really make too much of a change one way or another, is because we're not doing the best work we could. This is basically a maintenance system. Child advocacy centers, in my mind, are in this unique position of being at the point of crisis, of opportunity, and you know, in an emergency room where we can say, okay, when you leave us, we're gonna make sure uh, that this family has everything they need to succeed. It's not gonna be easy, it's not gonna happen overnight, could be a year from now, could be two years from now, but we're gonna be a key partner in making sure that happens. And I think that the next big challenge for child advocacy centers Again, this is just from somebody who's kind of parachuted in after a long time, is to figure out how we're a more integral part of that family healing process. And that once the kids leave us, we're just kind of like hoping for the best. I think that this may play into our own rates of sort of secondary traumatic stress. Like it's a more hopeful thing if you can have some continuing relationship with a family and see them get better. What feels hopeless and more traumatic is when you're there just at the point of crisis at somebody's worst moment and you don't have the joy of seeing kids get better with treatment or families get stronger, those kinds of things. So I wonder if, you know, we'll see our own rates of burnout decrease as we actually see our, you know, the improvement in families. Uh-huh. So what have I not asked you, Paul? This last point that you just raised, you know, the whole issue of, of, of vicarious trauma and secondary trauma to the team members who work in CACs. I think it's really easy after a while to begin thinking that this is the norm Mm. and that, you know, these, uh, you know, I shouldn't expect any more from these families. And I mean, just the kind of cynical thinking that develops and occurs after time goes on. And what I think we're not taking into account is that families who are caught in these long-term patterns of chronic neglect intergenerational trauma have really lost their way. Mm. I mean, they've really lost their sense of self. And so when you, when a social worker or caseworker or anybody asks the question, how can a parent do this to a child? It's not as if we're dealing with normal circumstances. We're dealing with families who are not thinking straight, who are not acting straight, who are not responding to their normal, natural, healthy instincts because their lives have been so distorted. So we have to figure out, you know, kind of, how we keep our team members from having that happen to them, right? We don't want them to think that this is the norm. We don't want them to think that this is okay. Mm. We don't want them to treat these families as if, you know, another one of the crazy families I'm going to deal with. You know, when we start doing that, then we do less than excellent work. And I think the challenge for any CAC director is to figure out how you keep that sense of urgency Well, urgency and empathy and resilience and hope and all of that. I agree. I agree. Well, Paul, we really appreciate you coming on and I'm excited to see the ongoing results of your work with Temple. I hope that more children's advocacy centers begin to take a look at their own rates of recurrence and re-victimization. And as you know, we have a project in the works for fall where hopefully we'll be inviting some CACs to join us in doing just that. So thank you. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you, and and thanks for all you do, and I appreciate the opportunity to be here today. Thanks for listening to One in Ten. If you liked this episode, share it with a friend. And for more information about National Children's Alliance and the work of children's advocacy centers, visit our website at www.nationalchildrensalliance.org.